Official figures show there are 260,000 children living in poverty in this country. The Growing Up in New Zealand longitudinal study, which follows the lives of 7,000 children and their families, is trying to find out which children are most at risk as early as possible and what can be done to improve their lives. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme revisits six families to find out how they're getting on. Melbourne's first two years are a blur. <laughs> having, an, having an older sibling kind of speeds everything up, I think. I think I don't remember much just because <laughs> it was just too busy. I try to teach my kids to eat healthy, and, but not all the time because we can't afford to eat healthy all the time. Anxiety around going and having another child. Um, unfortunately, a really difficult birth was set and was on antidepressants and was um, having therapy as well. Bringing a child into this world, helping them grow and watching them make their way, can be one of the hardest tasks a parent can face. But a study tracking the lives of nearly 7,000 children and their families has found many of them are not getting the best start in life. You can stand here. Isaac and Ryan, your bags are over here. In your sandals, please. Auckland University's 21-year study has released its third wave of research, looking at what makes children vulnerable in their first two years. The children involved are now five, but the data collected in their first 1,000 days, from conception until their second birthdays, shows many start their lives on the back foot. The study's research director, Dr Susan Morton, says she was surprised to find so many children were living in unhealthy environments. It was kind of a surprise to think that maybe one in three children was exposed to, to multiple factors that are likely to make them vulnerable. And it's certainly true that the more risk factors the children were exposed to, the greater the likelihood that they would experience poor health outcomes, really, in their first two years of life. I'm Anusha Bradley, and I've spoken to six families Insight has visited before, this time to find out more about the risk factors that could affect the rest of a child's life. You were painting your legs today, were you? The Growing Up in New Zealand Longitudinal Study has identified 12 key risk factors that can affect a child's health and well-being during this critical period. These include whether the mother is still in her teens, perhaps smokes or experiences depression, or whether their child lives in poverty, poor housing or rental accommodation. Dr Morton says the mother's ethnicity, and even where she was born, can have an impact on the child's life quite quickly. Those first thousand days, that idea that from conception right through to that two-year birthday for the children. That's a critical period for development. And what we can see using this data, because we've collected information from the families from even before the child was born, so in late pregnancy, we can start to see that the environment that the child is being born into and the maternal characteristics as well as the characteristics of the family are actually seeming to have an effect very early on in that child's life. Now, I think that's, that's kind of a good story, actually, because what it tells us is that there's possibilities to intervene even earlier than postnatally. So if there's some way that we can actually identify those mums and their families who might be in need of more support, even before a child is born, maybe the potential is there to actually intervene before poor outcomes develop. Incredible Broby is who I am. I can stretch my arms across Gabaland.
Depression is something Zach Anticott's mother, Donna, experienced when she was pregnant. She believes she also had depression with her firstborn, but it went undiagnosed. I was under maternal mental health with before I had Zach, um, and then treated for post-traumatic stress, really, or just anxiety around going and having another child. Um, and then I had, a, unfortunately, a really difficult birth with Zach, which didn't help, um, and had to have surgery afterwards. And um, after I'd had Zach, was on antidepressants and was um, having therapy as well. But come through the other side of that now, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Yo, oh, Super Gabba. Donna, a school guidance counsellor, and her husband Paul, a TV editor, say they paid for childcare and home help to ensure they had the support they needed after Zach was born. The more children that we've had, the more sort of help we've needed to buy in kind of thing and recognising that um, you actually just need to spend a bit of money to get some support. And, like, we have a little bit of family around and we've got good friends, but... You know, so you can't really rely on that too much and, and um, neither of us have parents that live in Auckland. Um, so we've just done things um, which have made life easier, like get a cleaner and get extra babysitting help and, that's, and we've got a university student that was picking up Sam and, and that sort of thing, yeah. And how did you find the maternal health services? Um, very difficult to get into and very difficult to get the right level of care because you really need to be high-end and the people that work in the system are fantastic but the system's just crippled by lack of resourcing and in the end I actually went um, private because I could. I was low-end on their scale, I still needed support, you know, and um, yeah, they're just overworked and underfunded. Donna says she found Plunkett a great source of support after her first son Sam was born, but there were noticeably fewer visits by the time Zach was born. Donna is now expecting her third child and says she's very aware of what might trigger depression this time around. The study found 16% of mothers experienced depression during their pregnancy. That dropped to 11% after birth. Susan Morton says the detail threw up some surprising findings. The reality that we saw is actually we've only got about a third of the mums who were depressed in pregnancy who continue to be depressed at nine months. Then we've got another two-thirds or so who are newly depressed, and we've also, encouragingly, got around two-thirds who've recovered. What I think we're interested now to see is do those changes in a very short period of time actually have a great deal of impact on the children's early development. And that's early days yet. So we don't know what kind of impact, say, depression might have on a child? Like all the risk factors, we, we know that maternal depression has been associated with poorer child development outcomes. But the way that that's been done mostly has been by looking backwards. What we can do with this data, because we're starting by looking forward, is to say... If children are exposed to that at one point in time or over time, what are the chances that they are going to develop some of these poor outcomes? So it helps us to understand how much energy we might put into um, treating, preventing, helping mums who are suffering in that way so that we can therefore help them to grow the healthy children that they actually um, would like to. While certain groups of mothers could potentially be identified as needing extra help, it's more difficult to make the same decision about children. 
One in three children were found to have been exposed to three or more risks in their first 1,000 days. Dr Morton says information that's already collected through routine pregnancy checks could help to identify who might need more help, even before they're born. Overall, the study found the more risks a child is exposed to in their early years, the greater the chances they'll get sick or be injured in that time. That's particularly true for children living in damp, cold homes, those living with a smoker, or both. Half the expectant mothers who smoked stopped when they found out they were pregnant, which meant 10% of all those in the study smoked during their pregnancy. But one in three children were living with a smoker once they were born. We saw a few mums take up smoking again once their baby was born, but I think the one in three figure is actually more indicative of other adults in the, in the home that these children are growing up in, smoking regularly around the children. That's maybe a message that we haven't got out there well enough. We have a lot of emphasis on the mums themselves. But actually what we probably should be thinking about is how do we talk about the wider family, the wider number of people that these children are growing up with, and how do we make it clear that it's not just about in pregnancy, but actually that postnatal period and that whole child's development through the early years, it's really important that we think carefully about the things that we're exposing those children to. While the various effects of smoking on children are well known, the study has also revealed interesting details about accidents and injuries. For example, children whose mothers were exposed to two or more risk factors in pregnancy were nearly 60% more likely to have had an accident or injury needing medical attention by the time they were nine months old. But by the time they were two, these babies were no more likely than others to have been injured, while some who were not deemed vulnerable at birth had now become so. Dr Morton says it's crucial to understand how and why these changes happen. Families and children are actually highly mobile, not just geographically, but in terms of moving in and out of some of these risk factors for, for example, living in areas that are deprived or being reliant on benefits. Or mums, for example, who are suffering symptoms of, of depression at one point in time, but potentially not at another. And so all of those tracking of exposures is really important. And then equally important will be what are the effects of being exposed to those things, not just at one point, but over time. You got your carrots. A two-hour drive south of central Auckland, single mother Lisa O'Hanlon lives in rural Waikato with her three sons, nine-year-old Boston, seven-year-old Lakin and five-year-old Tate. Her eldest daughter, now 20, has left home. It's the first day of the school holidays, but they're stuck at home today. We were going to town and going to suss out Hamilton at Chipmunks or something, but the car's got a flat tyre, so we're going nowhere today. <laughs> Until a friend of mine, he's coming out to fix it, so we'll be off to the tyre shop. There's plenty to do at home as Lisa prepares for the arrival of her fifth child in a few months' time. We chose went for purple, not pink, because pink's just overdone on the walls, I reckon. So you yeah, went for a nice purpley colour, and the boys helped me make the lampshade, didn't you? While the rent on the four-bedroom bungalow is cheap and there's plenty of space for her sons to play in the neighbouring paddocks, Lisa says it's a struggle to heat. Tate's had a cough, but considering what we had last year with like 
runny noses and really bad flus. They've had bugger all actually. It's been touch wood lucky so far. So so. Is it a cold house to live in? Yeah, yeah, there's no insulation and in it takes us a bit to warm this old house up. As you can see we've got two heaters in the one room plus a fireplace. But yeah, once once you get the chili out of the air and in here it's good. While Tate's health hasn't been so bad this winter, it's a different story for five year old Amelia Pritchard in South Auckland. It's a bitterly cold day when I arrive at the Pritchard's Papakura home and Amelia's mother Hilda is preparing a meal for later that evening. Their state house is insulated, but it's colder inside than out. So when people come to my house, especially wintertime, I'd rather talk to them outside than inside the house. It's because it's so cold. Hilda Pritchard says the family simply cannot afford to heat their home, and she believes that's why Amelia, the youngest of five, is constantly sick and suffers from eczema. She's always missing school because of um, cold and having flu, and I don't want her to go to school and spread it to the other kids. So, um, yes, it, it is. It is very cold, the house. So do you manage to heat it? Um, they put those kind of heater, but it doesn't really heat to the house. It, it's giving me bills, huge bills, so I just don't turn it on. I can't afford to pay for the power bill when, when we have the heater on. So I'd rather put too much clothes on them, and it's, it still costs because there's too much washing, you know. <laughs> and if it's with winter, it's always rain. So then in the dryer will go, oh gosh, almost every day. When Amelia was a baby, the family had to move out for two weeks while Housing New Zealand removed black mould that covered the ceilings and inside cupboards. Dr Morton says it was surprising to find the majority of children were living in cold, damp homes. It's something like half to two-thirds of all of our families, whether they were advantaged or disadvantaged, suggested to us that the baby quite often was in a damp and cold environment. So there's definitely something about the New Zealand context that makes us think that our houses are, are OK in terms of the temperature. And obviously there's been a lot of emphasis on trying to improve insulation and understand that having a warm environment is really important. It's harder for those families who are struggling with many other areas of their lives to provide heating as well as all the other things they want to. So we know it's something that is too high for all of our children. It's far too high for those who are exposed to more vulnerability. And it's one of the things that, again, potentially we could be looking at as a way to mitigate the effects of vulnerability. In the Auckland suburb of Mount Roskill, Donna Entercott says damp is still an issue, even though their home is insulated. I mean, we get mould on the curtains and that stuff, but no sort of mould on the walls or the ceilings or, or that. Um, but we do yeah, get condensation on the windows and run a dehumidifier. And It's not a damp house, but it's a New Zealand house, really, <laughs> you know. Oh, yes, I love this thing. I love this skeleton foot. Absolutely. Across town in the well-off suburb of Meadowbank, five-year-old Rowan Phillips and his brother Isaac get stuck into some Lego with their dad Derek, an investment banker. The family moved here when Rowan was 15 months old and they used the government subsidy to insulate their home. Rowan's mum, Canadian-born Sarah, also made sure to install central heating. Coming from Canada and coming from houses that are warm, 
though that I'm, I've been here now for 18 years, so I'm kind of used to now the the whole cold house thing that New Zealand's got. But it's um, I don't think it's good for anybody. I remember when um, when I was first pregnant with Isaac, I was finding out about ideal temperatures and whatnot for once the baby was born. And I remember reading somewhere um, something like the WHO recommendations for for babies for little babies was the house should never be under 20 degrees and then when they're older it shouldn't be under 18 degrees so it would just amaze me that you know people had these little babies in these these houses that were freezing cold so mm-hmm. we always made sure we had the, the thermometers in the in the kids rooms and made sure that they were nice mm-hmm. and warm in 2008 the world health organization found new zealand homes were around 6 degrees below recommended temperatures Dr. Susan Morton says homes in this country are less well insulated and heated compared with European ones, and that's one of the leading causes of high rates of ear, skin and respiratory infections amongst babies and toddlers. But she says there's no easy solution. We have highly mobile families, and one of the biggest problems is we have uh, almost 50% of these children growing up in rental accommodation. And it's much more likely to be private rental accommodation than public rental. So while we can do something about the public rental stock, and potentially while we can help people who are in their own homes and likely to stay there, there are a lot of families who are moving regularly between rental accommodation. So they're likely to be most at risk from this sort of environmental insults, if you like. Nearly a fifth of families reported putting up with the cold because they couldn't afford to pay for heating. Half were forced to buy cheaper food so they could pay for other things they needed. Hilda Pritchard says she has to buy cheap cuts of meat and put off purchasing fruit and vegetables if she wants to pay her power bill. So if I pay the power bill last week, and then that's the week we don't have the good food, this week I will try and buy the, get the good food, like healthy stuff, and then I don't pay the power bill. What I do, there's a box of chicken bags at Saveways. It costs $10. And if I get that, it's very fattening, and it's just bones and fat. So I just use it for curry, and, and my kids feel sick of eating it sometimes. <laughs> Most of the families I spoke to said they had experienced some kind of financial hardship while their children were very young. Lisa O'Hanlon is planning to go back on a benefit soon. She had to give up her job on a stud farm earlier than expected due to concerns the manual work was too dangerous for her current pregnancy. Her 14 weeks paid parental leave ends on the day her baby is due. It's kind of hard at the moment, but, um, but the boys have got everything we need. Before, you know, it would be nice with a little bit more money so we could you know, go and do the extra things over the holidays. I would like to take the boys down to the snow, but by the time you pay the petrol and get the warm clothes, and, yeah, it's a long trip. (laughs) So, yeah, a little bit. I I haven't worked out the benefit just yet of what we'll get on that sort of thing, but sort of even if I get go back into childcare and I can do that at home, you know, because I quite enjoy looking after other children and that, so... These are options for you. Thank you, Mum. Yep. Wash your fingers. Hold it this way. Don't maybe. Oh, I saw the cheeseburger. Back in Auckland, five-year-old Kano and McPhee helps to prepare the evening meal. 
Kānoa's father, Patrick, is self-employed, and his mother, Jada, is currently on maternity leave after the birth of her second son, Hawaiki, five months ago. She's planning to return to work next month. The McPhees say they struggle with Auckland's high living costs. Any family living in Auckland and being a working family would have. We have. Yeah, and it's and it sort of depends at what stage we're at. Like, I'm, I'm on parental leave at the moment, so that's knowing that that's coming and having your paid parental leave, and then I'm fortunate I've got an employer that does paid parental leave on top of the IRD. But then once that stops, A, then we have a bit of a, oh, panic, how do we do it? So you try and prepare for that, but, yeah, it can be, it can be tricky. Um, you look at the lifestyle that you can live in other places outside of New Zealand and outside of Auckland, for that matter, and, um, you know, you just realise how much you pay up here is... It's quite excessive, especially in terms of rents and stuff like that. But, you know, you make the sacrifices because you want to go to a great school and, you know, he, he plays rugby on Friday nights and that's at a really good rugby club and he, he really enjoys that. So you just make sacrifices. A few kilometres south in Papakura, Amelia's mother, Hilda Pritchard, has also started working part-time but it doesn't mean the family is better off financially. Now I've got a job. They cut the benefits and they move up the, the rent. So what's the difference? To me, I, I just sometimes, because I love the job and I wanted to go out there and, and do something with my life, but in, in, in my mind I'd rather stay home, have the benefits, look after my family, come home and there's food on the table. So you're actually better off if you don't work. I feel like it that way. Better off if I don't work. Through phone calls and interviews, researchers involved in the Growing Up study have tracked information about the family's finances leading up to their child's birth at nine months of age and then again at two years old. They found middle-income earners experienced the greatest hit to their income over that critical first few months of their child's life and also that families, whether rich or poor, moved frequently. Kānoa McPhee has shifted four times since he was born. Last year, the family moved from the well-off suburb of Maraitai to Sandringham, so Kānoa, who had been going to a kohangareo, could attend the local Māori immersion school. His mother Jada says they'd like to stay put this time. It's only been um, at the landlords selling the house that we've had to move so, or doing up the house. So as long as the landlord doesn't want to do anything, it'd be really nice to actually stay for longer than a year and a half somewhere. Has there been any impact, you think, on Kanoa having to move so often? I Surprisingly, no. Like I would have thought that it could have caused some stability issues or safety issues as far as the sense of establishment somewhere but he's quite a well-grounded kid as far as feeling secure in our family unit so even as long as the four of us are tight um, then he's been okay wherever we are. The study found a third of children had moved homes at least once between the ages of nine months and two years old. Those that did move were less likely to be in a traditional two-parent household, more likely to be Māori and had a greater chance of living in rental accommodation.
Two years ago, Teruma Heihei, the grandmother of one of the mothers enrolled in the study, told Insight her daughter Marcy, a single mother, had started studying nursing. Unfortunately, I couldn't get hold of the family this time around to find out how they're getting on. Hello, anyone here? I've just arrived at Marcy Heihei's home in South Auckland. The curtains are drawn and the garden is empty. There's nothing to indicate that anyone lives here anymore. Looks like she's moved on. The study found families move so frequently that researchers decided it wasn't an issue when it came to a child's well-being. While the chances a child will become vulnerable to poorer life outcomes increases with the number of risks he or she is exposed to, Dr Morton says it's important to note that not all children who are poor or live in cold or overcrowded homes do badly. One of the very interesting things that will follow on from this report is to say, what about those children who do well despite that exposure? What are the factors that might be family factors, they might be societal or policy factors, that are actually helping to mitigate the effects of being exposed to multiple vulnerability for those children? If you like, what makes them resilient? Generally, while we're able to focus on these poor outcomes, one of the great strengths of the cohort and the information that we have is that we can also explore what works for children and families. And I think it's really important as we start to focus on strategies that might actually target um, effective interventions to try and mitigate against the effects of vulnerability, we do understand what works as well as focusing on the negative. So the next pieces of research that allow us to say how can we actually structure policies to support families better so that children can achieve and belong and thrive and, and do well, that's an incredibly important piece of research. So looking in more detail at the children and families who haven't developed poor outcomes and yet who are exposed to these early risk factors will be an incredibly important part of the ongoing work with the longitudinal data. That data from the study will be used to evaluate current policies as well as shape future strategies that will hopefully improve the lives of all children in New Zealand. I'm Anusha Bradley and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Mark Chesterman.